Welcome to Investor's Edge, powered by SNL. Today, we have the managing partner of Saltwater Funds, Emlyn Scott with us. Emlyn is a successful founder, VC, and angel investor with personal investments in fast-growing tech companies like Kami, Segna, MealMe, Skylark Labs, and many more. He is also the founder of Open Markets Group, one of Australia's largest online brokers. He was the former CEO of National Stock Exchange of Australia, Australia's second largest listing stock exchange for four and a half years. Prior to that, he was the head of business at LCH, ClearNet for Equities and CFDs in London for nine years. That is world's largest independent clearing house. Emlyn today is going to talk about his journey so far, startups, and about his latest fund, Saltwater, and how it breaks the traditional barriers of VC funds. Welcome to the show, Emlyn. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, can you share your journey from being the CEO of National Stock Exchange of Australia to becoming a successful founder and investor? Yeah, it seems like a lifetime ago now. Um, so I joined the NSX National Stock Exchange, um, which is the small stock exchange here in Australia, uh, as the CEO back in 2011 now. Um, so yeah, it was kind of almost a lifetime ago. Um, I just arrived back in Australia from the UK. I'd been over there for 13 years. I'd worked and studied over there. Um, and they brought me in to sort of reinvigorate the market. Um, it was a listed, uh, what well, still is a listed uh, company. So that taught me uh, a lot about the listing side of the world as well, you know, running the public company as well as actually listing companies being a listed stock exchange. Um, and they uh, they wanted to, uh, as I said, reinvigorate the market. So uh, I was brought in to bring more listings in primarily um, and get the you know the market to 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 start getting more active uh, to do that I needed to bring online trading into the market so because um, it was phone only broking back then um, still still uh, needed to sort of you know move into the 21st century so I tried to convince the the large online brokers to connect to the stock exchange unfortunately um, couldn't wasn't a, a very strong business case for it um, so I got permission from the NSX board to to build a new online broker here in Australia, um, which I then set off to do, which was a 10-year project into itself. Um, and um, so we built, as far as we know, certainly Australia, but it may have been one of the world's first cloud-based online brokers at the time. So we ring fence client data within Australia. So we were actually the poster child for, for AWS at the time. We signed the first agreement with them to actually do that. Um, because they were just setting up all that, all that cloud computing, sort of centrally US, et cetera. But, you know, they needed to do it in each country to be able to ring fence client data. Um, and so I was a principal capital raiser for the, uh, the new broker um, and still trying to run the exchange. Um, and I, can't, for, I did that for the first, what, three or four years um, uh, in, in parallel. And I kind of figured that if I was messing up the capital raise as badly as I was messing it up, that, you know, and given my background in kind of business and, and finance, um, I, I surely couldn't be the only idiot that was. Um, and what I found was it was pretty endemic here in Australia. So that's how it then moved into um, me setting up another business here, which was uh, CP Ventures, which initially was to help startups raise capital. And the whole process of how you do that and, and you know, effectively get from, you know, the check in the door all the way from the beginning of, you know, once you, you, know, you think that you need the capital. Um, I put money also into uh, the broker that I'd set up. And then I also started investing into the startups. Um, what we realized probably in 
or I realized primarily in 2016 was that startups don't really have much money. Um, and so when you're trying to help them, uh, you know, you, you, every startup needs to help, but, you know, when they can't afford to pay you, you know, it's, it's not, you know, the, the greatest outcome for a business. So we realized that we were seeing some really good companies and the market here was very nascent uh, for investing. So that's when we decided to set up a fund uh, to start investing into, uh, into them. And I'd done fund management as well back in the UK. Um, so we set up that, uh, you know, here and there's a special structure here, which is a tax-free vehicle. And that launched in January 2018. And so um, I now left the exchange decided to work into that full time uh, while still doing the, you know, the broker stuff on the side and helping them. Um, and, and we started to invest into startups, both, both uh, personally, directly and via the fund. Um, I see. So Any... that was the journey. Oh, that's, that's very impressive. Any specific reason you chose startups as a mode of investment while there exists so much? And I think real estate is also one that's flourishing in uh, Australia. I'm, I'd done real estate back in the UK um, and, and owned a few places there and done the rentals and stuff like that. Um, and commercial actually came from a, you know, my parents' uh, sort of commercial background, um, which would have been a natural and probably a much easier evolution um, here in Australia because everybody loves property here. It's just crazy. Yeah. Um, I, I love the startup scene. I, like, I, I used to be a trader as one of my first jobs out of university, and I hated it. Um, because it was just paper shuffling to me and I like building things. So there is no better thing than building, you know, when, when, when you, you know, you're looking to start up, you're dealing with really enthusiastic people doing cutting edge stuff, trying to solve, you know, the world's biggest problems. I mean, what's cooler than that? So, um, you know, when you see it and you get the, you know, the feel for it, um, you know, I can't see really anything else that compares with that. That's, that's very good to hear. And I'm sure our audience will love that. Love that passion coming from a VC. So can you tell us a bit more about Saltwater Fund? That's something you recently launched. It has a unique approach to venture capital investing. And how do you think it's apart from what already exists out there? Yeah, there's a few questions there to, to, to unpack. <laughs> um, so I'd run two VC funds, still do, um, um, successfully touch wood you know as they say what can go wrong and start up um so we didn't want to do a third fund um as a vc fund for me um a vc fund is a very much like a marketplace you've got your investors on one side and you've got your startups on the other and so when i was we were looking at this it, we felt that the model itself which hasn't really evolved in 50 years you know since vc originally was was you know in its first genesis um, we felt that it really wasn't that fit for purpose, or at least for us. Um, and we, I, I went on a kind of a journey over the last sort of 12 months of trying to articulate what those issues were, because, you know, like every, uh, you know, uh, new, new invention, you start with the problem and kind of work from there and then go, can we solve it? And so I, I went through a process of trying to articulate what I found as the issues in, you know, for me in particular uh, with VC. And I, you know, I sat down with lots of people and asked them their views on these things. You know, yes, there's a problem here, but how acute is it? How big, you know, are you feeling this problem? And and the more I looked into it, the more I found that really the only reason people are using it is because there really isn't any alternative. Um, so you can do your own personal investing. That's great, but that takes a lot of time and you can't get a diversified portfolio particularly easily. Uh, in, the, in the world of um, uh, early stage, you need to structure it a certain way to be able to take advantage of the, you know, the, the power law. 
Um, and so when we were looking at this, we were just like, the more we, we we dug into it, the more we didn't want to do a fund three. And and so that's why we stood back and went, well, okay, we've got all these problems, but can we fix them? And can we create something better? And that's where we came up with the the the, the idea of saltwater. So saltwater in its in its essential form, so if you look at the model of VC, 10 years, two and 20, um, and that has a whole lot of structures within it, you know, and obviously you're, you're investing into to private companies and you're doing an LP um, GP structure. Um, so we went um, away and went, well, that has a lot of problems or causes a lot of outcomes. And so we went, okay, well, instead of two and 20, we'll make it evergreen. Now that changes a whole lot of parts of where a VC model has to invest into things at a certain stage. So you have to raise capital right at the beginning. Um, so you've got certain windows you have to deploy, it, you have to follow on a certain time, then you have to you know, um, uh, harvest it in a certain time. And inevitably VCs start having those discussions and we're having those discussions now with our portfolios. Like, well, we've been in you for like five, six years now. Like, you know, hey, what are you thinking about exit? You know, and it may or may not be the right time for a company. And inevitably, it usually isn't because if you want to build something really big, that takes time. And usually it's a time window that a VC can't match. And so you, you start to have this clash between, between the company. So that was the evergreen. And then there was the 2% uh, investment, uh, sorry, management fees. Now that has a whole lot of problems that um, I'm sure you're familiar with from the impact of um, you know how much you can actually deploy. So if you're 2% for 10 years, then you know you, straight away you can only deploy 80% of your funds. And what does that mean on a multiple basis? And then there's the conflict. So you've raised capital. That's great. So uh, you know, so what do you do now? You, you're sitting on this lovely 2% management fee for for 10 years just for turning up to work. So, you know, what happens if the LP is in a fund and they're not happy? So they're stuck in that fund. They're paying 2% every year. There's a conflict of interest between the GP and the LP. So they're inevitably they're going to want to raise more funds, you know, bigger funds uh, more regularly. Um, so all these things start to play out. Um, and that's not a good thing when you're conflicted with your customer. Um, so you get a better outcome when they don't. Um, and then there's the liquidity aspect of the, of the model. Um, that's okay depending on what type of customer you have. But if your customer is a high net worth individual or family office, generally they want to have liquidity. Times change. You know, you can't predict 10 years forward. If you're an institutional investor, generally you don't care too much because staff can come and go and the institution stays. But if you're any of the other type of investing types, then, then it becomes an issue. And inevitably, we get calls from customers or from, from our LPs and they go, you know, so you're having any you know, liquidity anytime soon? You know, my kids are wanting to, to you know, buy a house. They want to do this. I want to do that. So or they're retiring or whatever's happening. So life goes on for them. So the model doesn't necessarily fit for them. So that's where we went to a zero twenty model. We're very comfortable that we can make a lot of money for our customers. So we perfectly align with them by going, we won't take any management fee. We'll put 100% into the ground. Um, then there's other issues like, um, you know, VCs only do drawdowns. So let's say you want to try and create a portfolio structure. You know, you talk to a VC and you say, I want to allocate 5% of my net worth to VC. Well, that's very difficult. The VC turns around and says, well, I only want 20% deposit. And I want to draw it down with 10 days notice over the next four years. And you go, well, great. How do I structure that? Um, so, so we have 100% upfront. 
Um, so there's these sort of things that we've designed into the model to make it very different. Um, and we've created liquidity into the model. So the way of doing that is to be able to create or, or invest into both liquid and illiquid securities. So we'll go into you know, the listed market and we'll go into the private market. And both of those portfolios have to be managed quite differently. How does this evergreen fund model work? It almost seems untrue. 0% management fees. You talk about quarterly liquidity, uh, a lot of benefits for the investors. Yeah, we've done a lot of modeling, as you can imagine. Um, but, you know, Excel's wonderful um, until you <laughs> test it in the real world. So to do that, we're starting very slowly um, and very easily. Um, Chris, the other managing partner, and I are seeding the funds. So that's another issue with, you know, with a lot of VC funds that they talk about management, you know, sort of GP commitment. And it's not really, you know, it's like 1% really is that commitment, you know, when, when your LPs are taking 99% of the risk. Um, and, and so we're seeding it. We're the largest LPs. We are the largest LPs of our existing funds. So, so we'll start very slowly. We'll build it up where we're comfortable that, that we can create uh, liquidity by having that structure between the two asset classes. And they both have to run differently. One has to run on a power law type model, which is your listed, your unlisted sort of side of the market, um, where you get most of your returns from a few investments. And then on the listed side, you run that slightly differently. We're still looking for sort of that fourth industrial revolution technology type companies, but we're now looking for companies that are profitable. We're looking for companies that are far more established, um, ones that we can see growing and delivering. So, you know, company that everybody would know, something like NVIDIA, you want to try and find the NVIDIA of 15 years ago and then get on that journey with them uh, um, and find those sort of companies. And so you're looking for a little bit of a, a different, off, a very a much more concentrated structure um, of, of companies than you do in an unlisted uh, section of your portfolio. So is it now concentrated on specific uh, stages like series B, C, beyond, or you're stage agnostic but trying to find those gems? How does it work? So on the unlisted side, um, we still have a natural tendency to like going early because that's where you find the really high IRRs, so really high returns. Um, you know, if you invest in a company at, you know, 20 million and you exit at 200 million, for example, you know, you 10x your money without dilution. But if you could have got in at 2 million, well, then you're looking at a completely different return profile. You know, you're sitting on 100x your money. So, but your chance of, of getting that right is, is far harder, um, obviously, because exactly. it's far harder to, to identify. We're very comfortable getting in a pre-seed and seed stage. But we also like to, we're also very creative. So we're, we're very comfortable doing secondaries and doing, you know, uh, interesting structures with our companies. Um, that help them. So, so um, yeah, it won't just be here. We're just doing pre-seed seed because it comes through the door. We'll actually look at what's out there. And they may be potentially much larger later stage companies where people want to exit, you know, their holdings or, or a portion of their holdings. And we see it as a, as a, as a good opportune time to be able to get into those. Plus, plus, you know, I've run a stock exchange, so I'm comfortable listing companies. So, you know, there could be, you know, the potential to be able to invest and then take them down that route of listing their company, et cetera. Um, and on the listed side, well, the stages we'll be looking at will be much earlier. So I'm not looking at the, the next $100 billion, you know, trillion dollar Apple company. Uh, anybody can, can you know, look at those ones. I'm much more comfortable looking much earlier stage. So where the analysts generally don't or there's very little analyst attention um, and scanning those companies and doing deep research because as a, as a 
VC, you become comfortable in dealing in uh, with the lack of information or, or lack of external pricing and making your own prices for a company. Um, and so you can apply that to the listed space and, you know, the way your psychology kind of works. I see. Interesting. So this does change a lot of uh, things for the investors and in fact takes out a lot of frustration out of the system. Uh, we would be interested to know what you know, inspired you to build this model? And also, how does this impact the startups? Like, are you missing out on specific startups because of this? Are you being more risk averse because of this new change? How does this impact the founders who are listening to this? Yeah, so um, maybe if I start with the founders first, um, I don't think there's any one model that fits everybody. So if you look at most VCs, they will tell you that you know they will roll up their sleeves and they'll help you. Um, in in my experience, you there's some that do and there's some that don't. And so, but everyone says that they will. When we went back over our portfolio, ironically, the companies that tended to do better were the ones that we had the least amount of contact with. Uh, ironically, so either we're really rubbish with our advice, or or um, it's just those 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 founders were just the most talented. They just got on with it. Um, from my perspective, I kind of see it a little bit arrogantly that I can go into a founder that's really really good, that's working twenty four by seven, and tell him you know with you know spending an hour a week or two hours a week with him that I know more than he does or that I'm right. Um, you know, that's, you know, that's, if I'm doing that, then I've invested in the wrong founder. Um, so I'm better to spend my time looking for founders that want my capital, want my brand. I'll help them when they need to raise capital, because obviously we're experts at that, at that stage. But in terms of running their business, just letting them get on with running their business, um, report back to us, let us know how it's going. We're you know, we always love knowing how it's going and we always want to report to our LPs how it's going and they get excited with our portfolio. But I don't want to get involved day to day. I don't want to roll up my sleeves. I don't want to be on a board of a company. And that suits some founders and doesn't suit others. Um, in my experience, it generally does suit a lot of founders. The other part of it as well is that if a VC is turning around and saying, okay, I've got a certain window that I've got to invest in you and get out of you, that puts a certain pressure on a founder. And a founder's got to then perform in a certain way. If you're an evergreen fund, I don't care if you take 10, 15, 20 years. Um, just build the biggest, best business you can. So it's a different thing that we're trying to do with the founder. Again, that may suit some um, and may not suit others. That's wonderful to know. Um, you also talk about fourth industrial revolution and investing in breakthrough technology companies that are leading mm. this revolution. Can you elaborate on what that means and why is it significant for investors and what does it mean for founders? Yeah, so um, for founders, um, it just means that, you know, if they're, they're doing breakthrough technology, chances are they're hitting one of those. Uh, we identified 25 verticals. So there's no true definition of what the fourth industrial revolution kind of technologies are. So we, we dug into it and we came up with 25, um, the, you know, um, uh, sectors, and then we actually broke those down into subsectors and then sub-subsectors, and then you're in the thousands, you know, of, of different different areas. Um, so, so what's an industrial revolution? So industrial revolution is just a, a, a quantum change in the way that a society kind of operates, but it generally works across 
three things. So it works across energy, communication, and transportation generally. And we're in the fourth industrial revolution now, and it's very cliche, um, but it's actually, but it is true. So, so if you think back to what is it, the 1780s, which was the first one, your your energy was your your coal and steam. Uh, essentially, your transportation was um, the steam engine, and your communication was a printing press. And then a hundred years later, we moved to you know fossil fuels and cars and 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 um, the telephone. Then we had the next evolution a hundred years later, about 1960, which was the automation side. So that's when the internet came along. That's when we had renewable energy sort of kick in, um, and and um, and and plane travel became sort of mainstream. So there's the sort of three, and now we're in the fourth one. And so the fourth one's super exciting because it's the biggest of all of them, because it actually, it's actually the, it's called the intelligent age. So it's actually the marrying of a lot of technologies together. And we're seeing that in our portfolios. So maybe an example um, of, of that. So if you look at, at say, um, thermal energy, which is an area we've invested. So thermal energy in the past would have been, okay, what have we got? that exist today that we can heat up and store energy. But actually now with the fourth industrial revolution, what happens is that they create material science, which is one of the 25 verticals, and they create a new substance that can store energy that now helps, you know, be able to solve one of the other big problems of the of the world, which is, you know, climate change and too much carbon. So, and then the, the only way to check that material science is through the technologies of being able to, you know, use the, you know, the advanced AI and stuff like that to be able to actually look at all the different potential material sciences that you can put together. So, you know, it, it, you, you're getting this connection of a whole lot of different technologies together that make new things that just weren't possible 10 years ago that become possible. Um, and so it's super exciting now. And that so is, for investors, that's the, that's the best thing because they can make no, huge, huge returns faster than they ever could at any other time in history. Emlyn, something you mentioned last time we talked and stayed with me is that we lead in terms of the revolution. If everyone is already talking about AI, we're already too late. So yes. how do you identify trends that are going to become trends in the future and already invest in them? And your portfolio definitely reflects that. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is we get it wrong too. Um, so, so you know, but when 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 we tried to break that down, there's kind of like the I think it's the Boston Matrix, you know, two by two kind of you know way of way of looking at it. And so, uh, if you if you if you break down what is actually good ideas and bad ideas, and what looks like good ideas and looks like bad ideas, the main two blocks you get are essentially consensus investing or sort of herd investment. So they are good ideas, but they look like good ideas. So that's AI right now, right? So that's mainstream. It's where all the money goes and where most people get in. They're very comfortable because we're all comfortable being kind of a, you know, kind of herd to some extent. And then there's there's contrarian investments, which are good ideas, but they don't look like good ideas because they're too early. So you haven't got much data to work with. And that requires a lot of imagination to be able to look at something and go, what could this look like two, three, five years from now? If they can actually solve these really, really tough problems uh, and make this thing work. Um, and that's where that's where you make massive returns, but it's it's not for the faint hearted. And so um, when you go in there, you can look like an idiot 
you know, because occasionally, you know, you think it's a good idea and, and you know, it's it and it turns out to not be a good idea and, and or it's just too damn hard to do it or, you know, any of a thousand different other things go wrong. Um, and so that's how we, you know, we got into generative AI, like, you know, what was it, like two and a half years ago. Um, now, um, thermal energy, these sort of things. So you can see a big problem there in certain things or opportunities, but the likelihood of pulling it off is very, very small. But if they do, um, the payoff's very, very big. I'm, I'm sure. And it is pretty interesting. I mean, other VCs can actually look at your portfolio and take inspiration because that is probably going to become the trend in the next two or three, four years. I mean, I, I hope so, because that's where, you know, you're solving the biggest problems. Um, yep. Because if you're just jumping on a bad wagon, then, you know, you're, you're not really. So, yep. so you know, that's, that's, that's what we all hope. Exactly. So you have invested in several tech companies now. Can you share some insights into your investment philosophy and what do you look look for in the startups before making an investment? Sure. Um, so if you break it down probably to the two things, and we've, we've covered one, which is that contrarian. So that's the bit that where you can't easily put your you know finger on it, but you look at it and you go, well, that's just a crazy idea. But, you know, if you pull it off, that's awesome. So that's the bit that I don't think many investors do. And that's the bit that makes the difference. Then you've got the other part that all of us do, which is, is it a big problem they're trying to solve? You know, it's the breakdown of the list. What's the solution look like? How good's the team? What's their IP and their moat? What's the unit economics? All the stuff that you break down. So that's much more businessy side of the equation. And it's the two things together that, that uh, you know, make for, for, for picking you know, good businesses. And then once you've done that, I think, um, and I don't hear too many people, you know, do it too much, but if you're doing it deal by deal, then you haven't constructed a portfolio the right way. Um, so everyone's going, oh, you know, what investment this, what investment that? And it's like, okay, that's a nice investment, but how does that fit into what you're actually trying to create? Because it's the, it's, it's the portfolio working together that performs the, you know, produces the return. Um, and how do you do that? And that's really tricky. And I don't know of any asset class that's as hard as doing it as VC. And the reason for that is because you don't know how big your fund's going to be when you start investing. So you don't know the check size. You don't know what's going to come in the door. So you don't know what you're going to have to write. And then you don't know what the follow-on investments are going to look like either. So you're constantly moving these pieces around to try and create something that looks like a portfolio at the end of the day. And that's really, really hard especially for earlier stage funds. So more risk, more reward. How do you battle that startup energy to make sure that you're also generating more rewards for your investors? I mean, with this new fund, you have this hybrid investment approach. And mm -hmm. does that take away a bit of your risk or make it, you know, even more risky to invest in early stage startups? Want to understand that? So, oh, it depends on how you define risk. And, and that's... Um, I think there's a big, well, there's a lot of different understandings of it. And I've got a very um, academic background initially, and it's completely wrong. So you can tear it up and throw it away. It's just years of my life wasted. Um, so, so generally, risk in the financial world is defined as volatility. So, um, and, and if you look at volatility, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. No one does. Anyone that tells you that they do is, you know, well, you know, they're probably very, very wealthy, but, but, you know, it's just not possible. But the longer you go out in time, ironically, 
most people see that as increasing risk. But actually, as you go out in time, that that movement of market up and down starts to fade away into a trend and things start to, to trend towards their intrinsic value away from sort of that, that herd emotion of the, of the market movement. And so if you actually look at risk as actually the probability of loss, and I think that's the way the VCs look at it very well. We look at businesses when every investment we make, we're owning a proportion of a business. So if you look at a business and you look at it from the probability of going, am I going to lose money? I don't care whether the price of something is going up and down. I care about how my business is performing because I'm not looking at selling it tomorrow. I'm looking at selling it in 10 years from now. And so it's going to trend back to where the intrinsic value, what the value of that business is over time. And so if you're looking at, a, at a, whether it's an early stage or a public company, if you're looking at being able to try and predict and take a view on the business over time, I don't think it actually matters that much between the two. It's more about you just your perception of the way you view risk. And I think VCs are very good at taking away the market noise, ignoring it and concentrating on the intrinsic value of the business itself. Sure. And, and that's actually most important. Otherwise, you will be stuck in this, you know, making investments, trying to get an exit sort of a route and uh, not be able to actually make that money or that startup fulfill their passion and the dream that they have for the world. Uh, on that note, what is your vision for the future of venture capital? And how do you think Saltwater fits into that vision? So the future of venture capital, um, I hope it's very rosy because we need it. Um, you know, that's where, you know, the, the most amazing companies have, uh, you know, get their initial backing because they're not going to get it from a bank. What do I see in it? I see more types of different VCs coming about. And that has its pluses and minuses because it, it means that investors are going to have to try and work out what they want to go into. So choice is good, but some choice is confusing too. Um, and similarly for for the companies, because, you know, they can get, you know, venture debt, they can get, you know, standard VC, and then there's all the different terms and nuances of that. So it becomes more complex for founders to have to deal with it. Um, but if the if the ecosystem and choice, and that's where evolution and, you know, hopefully the, you know, the strongest survive at the end of the day, um, hopefully it just gets better and, and it evolves. And, and I think see saltwater just as one piece of that puzzle. That we're adding another, another excuse me, another option, um, and being able to give investors another choice and give startups another potential option um, of a different type of model, and that will suit some and not suit others, and that's perfect because that's what a marketplace should be. Exactly. So talking more about the fund itself, from the perspective of founders, you're located in Australia, but mm -hmm. you have invested globally um, over the years. So what about saltwater? Is it also going to be global with a focus on Australia, only a percentage allocation outside? How does this work? Like, what is the system going to be? Oh, it's definitely going to be global. Um, so our first fund was, in VC fund, was 80% um, uh, or more Australian and 20% offshore because of the that certain tax, tax structure of that fund. Our second one was the exact opposite, so offshore. Um, Australia is about 2% of the world's GDP. So if you're restricting your place, your, 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 your focus on to you know, a really small market, then you're missing you know, 98% of all the opportunities out there. 
Um, the other thing is, is that it helps with your eye with picking the deals because, you know, while it's harder to look at the whole world and you're kind of like sucking on a fire hydrant of information, um, if you're going to be a very successful business, you're going to have to do it on the global stage. And so when you're assessing a business, you need to be able to look at that business from a global perspective. And I do think it's much easier to do that if you're constantly looking at companies from around the world. Otherwise, if you're looking at two companies from your local market, you might go, oh, that one's way better than this one. And you go, that's fine. But comparing that business to an overseas business, it's still not good enough. Um, and that gives you that lens. Um, so we'll continue to invest globally. The vast majority of our funds will be international, uh, you know, of our investments. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, is the fund active now? And if like any founder wants to pitch to Saltwater, what is the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, we're just, um, Chris and I are just seeding it at the moment. So we're transferring all our assets in. Um, well, not all our assets, uh, the assets that we're putting in there. Um, and uh, and our first investors are coming on board just at the moment. So literally, you know, I came from some of those calls just now. Um, and, then, um, and then we'll be, you know, as I said, doing everything quite slowly because no one's quite done everything that we're doing in one go. So evergreen funds exist, zero twenties exist, but no one's wrapped everything together into a hybrid fund and done all this sort of stuff that we're doing. So we'll continue to do everything very slowly. Um, we'll probably be making our first uh, new investments because we're we're also seeding it with an existing portfolio. Um, so we've one portfolio that we're very, very comfortable with. Um, so we'll probably be making new investments first, second quarter next year. Um, and then being evergreen, We'll be doing it forever, so so it won't stop. Um, so so uh, if people want to contact us, they can you know go to the website. So that's saltwaterfund.com. They can come into my LinkedIn. Um, I think I'm the only person in the world with my strange name. So so uh, you know Emlyn Scott. So um, or or uh, you know they can email. So again, they can find that on the on the website. That's pretty cool. My last question, what kind of pitch works for you? What's a compelling pitch in your definition for a startup founder? Um, that's really tricky because it comes in all shapes and sizes. Um, so I would say first, first and foremost, concise, um, different, passionate, um, but it's got to be complete. So we're always looking for chinks in the armor. And and with startup, there's always chinks. Um, but you know, the founders that can answer the questions and and dig below the surface um, and have a vision for where their business is going to be um, generally get get cut through. You know, we're always looking. It's it's really weird. People go, "How do you pick the businesses?" When you see one, it stands out like a like a shining beacon. It's so weird. Um, in, and if you have a hundred deals coming into you, one of them will look like that. The problem is two or three will look okay, and they're really hard to work out whether you know they you know they can flip up into that shining star or they're just you know just a bit brighter than the others. That's wonderful to know. Any last piece of advice you would like to share with potential VCs or founders out there? Um, for the founders, um, extra advice. Um, oof. Well, they've taken on a rough journey. So, so I mean, being a founder is, you know, former founder and founder, you know, doing this now. So, so keep at it. You know, I, hopefully the VCs are out there supporting you, not just from a, you know, 
writing a check, but more, you know, emotionally, it's it's a, it's a lonely, hard journey, and and that's why I think the best investors, investors uh, that have actually been on the journey, because they can empathise instead of sympathise. So that's very good to hear. Thanks a lot for your time this with our audience. Soon. Thank you, my pleasure, and uh, happy to chat anytime. Take care. <music>